for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Hey, thanks. Yeah, Ryan, uh, my wife and I, um, we had a great vacation last week, and so uh, thanks for giving us that opportunity to do that. Band, thanks so much uh, for last week and for setting us up. Kendall, thanks for joining the team. All right, so you're the new worship leader on, I think that's what Ryan failed to mention is that you were moving here and and being a part of the team, right? Um, uh, Unfortunately, I think it's going to be the opposite, but... uh, Hey, what can you do, right? Katie's shrugging her shoulders. You know, so so happy for you guys. Thank you, band, seriously for, um, man, for serving us this morning, leading us in song. And um, so, if you're a guest today, thank you so much for being here. We're so glad that you're here. Um, if you don't know, we're uh, in a sermon sermon series on prayer called Knowing God. And uh, we're looking in the book of Ephesians at Paul's two prayers there, both in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Um, and we're just really kind of using these passages, uh, these portions of scripture to dig down deep and kind of get in the weeds a little bit and unearth just what, what is Paul saying? Why is he praying it? Um, what can we glean from it? And, uh, today my main point, I'll give it to you up front is this. We pray because we have an eternal hope and inheritance. We pray because we have an eternal hope and inheritance. It is ours. First, I want to say a couple things. One, I don't stand up here as someone who's an expert on this topic. Um, I don't stand up here as the exemplary model of prayer, although I seek to be uh, for my wife and for my kids and for you all as one of your pastors. I seek to be a man of prayer. But I don't stand up here as someone who is perfect in this by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. I want to be someone who could share a wealth of knowledge with you on my past experience in prayer. But that is not how I stand up here this morning. The second thing I want to say to you, if you come in this morning and and my, my prayer life sucks. Hey, I want you to know that it's okay to be honest and to, it's okay to not be perfect. 
We're all on a path of growth here. It's okay to not, to even be uh, okay. The first step in all of this is really honesty in, in this topic. It's really just vulnerability. And we don't have to puff ourselves up and make ourselves something out that we're not. But we all should be growing in our prayer life. And we can learn a lot from Paul. And so we take a look at these passages here. And one of the things we learn from him is this, that Paul prays the promises of God. Paul prays the promises of God. He knows the promises of God. And he prays them. And this is seen through a couple different layers. One is that, well, he's taken in this first chapter here great lengths to just unearth and unpack for us the riches of the gospel and the work of God in salvation. He's convicted in God's sovereignty. We see him talking to the church in Ephesus. His whole reason to begin the prayer is, um, is based upon what he sees God doing in the church of Ephesus. So he, he says, I give thanks for these things, for God has chosen you, he's loved you, he's acted on your behalf before you were even a thought to anyone on earth. God has acted and moved to call you his own. He's convicted by God's sovereignty as he prays from that angle. And he's confident in the gospel. He's confident um, in how God's sovereignty has worked in Christ to save his people. God in Christ has redeemed us, forgiven us, and sealed us as his own. And these two things produce, Paul, bold prayers. Last week we saw that Paul prayed that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians would be enlightened. The eyes of their hearts would know the fullness of what God has called them to. And he says this, to know that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. To know, this is a decisive, it's a definitive knowledge. It's based upon careful thought and reason. It has to do with um, basically what you would think it has to do with understanding, perceiving, and seeing. It is to have your mind and your attention turned to something, to pay attention, to observe, inspect, examine, to look at, and behold. But it can also have another meaning that Paul uses it. Um, an example would be First Thessalonians when he's speaking to the church there. He uses it in this context in First Thessalonians 5.12. He says, I think it's on the screen. Now we ask brothers to give, you brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them, there's the word translated there as regard, to regard them very highly in love because of their work. So this, this word know here in Ephesians can also be translated as regard or esteem or cherish. And what Paul is saying is based upon an understanding, a perceiving of how your leaders, Thessalonians, care for you as a people, then you are called to cherish them, to pay them regard. And so the same exhortation can be seen here to the Ephesians as well, where based upon your understanding, Ephesians, of how God has sovereignly called you, now that your heart and your mind and your whole being, your soul is illuminated to the, how he ferociously loves you, may your affections be stirred towards him. May you regard him and cherish him. And he breaks this down into three things. He says that you may know what, what is the hope to which he has called you, 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness and power of power, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? We're gonna look at the first two today and, and then the third one regarding his power next week. The first two, not because they're one and the same thing, but because they are two parts of the same future reality. So the first one, to know what is the hope to which he has called you. To know what is the hope to which he has called you. This really just simply means this, that there is an outcome to this calling. That there is a purpose to this calling. And that you are called to this hope. You're called to this hope. Romans 5.2, what, what is this hope? Romans 5.2 kind of helps us hopefully understand this a little better. And this is again Paul speaking now to the Romans. And he says this regarding this hope that he's talking about. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have obtained access through Christ by faith in this grace in which we stand And we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the hope is the glory of God. So then we can ask, well, what is the glory of God? Well, Christ prayed that his followers would see his glory. John 17, 24. The dying Stephen did see the glory in Acts 7.55. The glory is closely connected to Christ himself, for Colossians 1.27 tells us that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We know that it is ongoing for um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are being transformed from glory to glory. And that we know that the consummation of this is yet to be revealed. The fulfillment, the, the, the actuality of this is yet to be revealed, Romans 8.18. But one day it will be. So what we can say is that what Paul prays for the church to know in, in Ephesus is that there is an immediate hope in Christ, who carries us to the Father, and a future hope that he will continue to carry us all the way until eternity, and where we will live with him and the Father in perfect unity. On this um, commentator, old commentator, Ernst Cosman, a German commentator, um, uh, on the book of Hebrews here, I'm sorry, not Hebrews, Romans, in his commentary on it, he says this, It is not the prospect of what might happen, but the prospect of what is already guaranteed. He says this, there is a distinctiveness about Christian hope. Whereas for English speaker, hope may imply doubt. For Paul, it implied certainty. I had a neighbor um, that I remember speaking with a few years back. Uh, who wasn't a believer. And I was speaking to him about what Christian hope was. And I remember him saying to me, I don't believe in hope. You know, what I want to happen, I make happen. Hoping in something to happen will, will not get you anything. And on a few different levels, I agree with him on that. But it's all in reaction to a false understanding of what Christian hope is. Christian hope is certain hope. Because it is based on the completion and is grounded and rooted in what Christ has done in the past, which purchased us a certain future. It's guaranteed. And Paul 
is unpacking this and he's saying, you are to know this. Basically, we can say this. What does it mean that you are called to this hope? You're called to your first love, your first hope, your first calling, your first calling, Christ. And uh, this past week, Pastor Ryan was in, he was in Colorado with Carrie, and they were doing this great retreat for pastors and wives, and he told me about um, this quote that he heard, and I want to share it today um, by a pastor in Fremont, California, his name's Ryan Kwan, and he says this, um, he says, we do not live for a future, we live from a future. We do not live for a future, we live from a future. And so, um, I don't know all the depths of what he talked about there, but um, I'm going to try to unpack this for us today because I think it's really helpful. Um, We place everything that we know and we understand about the world um, around us behind the lens of the gospel. And we view it with an understanding of what God has done in Christ for us. Already, And from there, we work really, really hard to tease out all the implications of the gospel in order to apply it to our daily lives, the daily living. So how do you know if you're living from a future and not just for a future? How do you know if you're living from a future and not just for a future? Well, there's probably many ways, but here's two things. Here's two ways that I'd like to talk about. One is your present. Your present. You're not detached from the day-to-day moments, but you're present in those moments. A for-future hope says that this, this life, this world that I live in is wicked and it's, it's, it's meaningless and I have to detach myself from it in order to not be stained by it. And so I cut myself off, off from all that the culture has and the world has in order to preserve myself for a day when Jesus comes back. And, and honestly, that's, that's where the monasteries got it wrong. Right? It's just to withdraw ourselves from everything that's in the world in order to abstain from it, in order to preserve ourselves and keep ourselves holy. But a from a future hope says that this world is wicked. This world is in need of a savior. But God is making all things new and he invites me into the process of that. Into redeeming culture, into redeeming the world that is around me. And I gladly step into that. So the first thing is how you know you're living from a future is that you're present. You're present in life. The second thing is you pray. You pray. You know, we know that Paul lived from a future hope by the way that he prayed. A for a future hope might pray, come Lord Jesus, but it ends there. Because what else do you have to pray for if you're, if you're cut off in isolation except for just Jesus come back soon, please? But if from a future hope says, come Lord Jesus in the midst of the work. When I'm working and I feel the joys, come Lord Jesus, because I want to experience the fullness of this. When I'm working and I'm striving and I feel the pains of it, come Lord Jesus, because I know that this will not last forever. But we keep our attention and our focus on that day that has already been purchased for us. We pray in the midst of the work because we know this, that there is no amount of personal exertion or human ingenuity 
that could ever bring about renewal. So we must pray to the Spirit of God to come and work in us to bring about this renewal, to bring about this newness that he wants to bring. We must pray. This praying is not void of action, right? I mean, I, just in this past two, this, this year, I've read two articles um, regarding all the school shootings that have been happening um, in, in our nation. Two articles just this year, one by the Huffington Post that says, people are sick of thoughts and prayers and demand action. Another one that read, your prayers and your thoughts do not do anything for this nation. And, and although I cannot condone the demeaning and the undermining of the power of prayer, those that I have to be honest and say that the church has been guilty of just lifting up sentimental prayers in a void of no action because we believe that we have no part in actually redeeming the culture that is around us. Jesus taught us to pray in the midst of what is happening. And they say, Spirit of God, I need you. I don't know what to do, but I know you do. So come and give me wisdom. Come and bring fervor to my actions. Come and bring resolution to my day-to-day living that I would fulfill what you have called me to. People that live from a future hope do not offer sentimental prayers void of action. No, we march forward. We're convicted by the Spirit's leading. We're resolute on bringing change and confident in God that he will be faithful in bringing it about through his people as we fix our eyes upon him. The hope of the gospel. Church, the hope of the gospel is the only thing that we have in this life to interpret the hard questions in it. It's the hope of the gospel. How will we know how to love our gay or lesbian or transgender family or neighbor or anyone who walks in this church well if we do not have a proper understanding of the gospel, if we don't have a perspective that the gospel gives us. How will we know how to address the issues that divide our neighborhoods of race if we, don't, if we aren't seeing through the lens of the gospel? And I'm confident that we will not, that we will only be swayed by popular cultural opinion both in the church that is wrong and outside of the church. So we must pray that the Spirit of God would come about and we would come and bring about an understanding of what is the hope to which we are called to. You will not grow in your understanding of this hope if the application of prayer is not there. So do you pray about these things? The things that... That this tear you apart inside, the things that you're scared of, the things that you don't have the answers to, do you pray about them? You pray for them. Prayer shows that you are dependent upon Jesus and that you're, you're under his yoke, right? That his spirit's leading is what we need to walk faithfully in this world. And then the second thing, do you pray with others or pray for others? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? do not even the best of us refuse Jesus' yoke even though that's the, the we know that's the thing that we need the most for rest in our souls do not even the best of us refuse him of course we do so we, do we pray for our brothers and sisters to remain faithful to, to, as Paul says that we would know what is the hope to what we have been called to do we pray for each other in that regard we must. 
If we prayed more often, we'd be more fully, we'd more fully understand the hope that we have been called to. The second thing that Paul prays for that we would know is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his saints. I'll be honest with you, this part of the verse really threw me for a loop and I really got, went back and forth and wrestling and just what is the exact interpretation of this? Um, what is Paul trying to say? There's really two schools of thought. One is um, that we are God's inheritance is what Paul is saying and that God is our inheritance. Both are absolutely true. Both are absolutely in the Bible and are very much important. And, um, and so I, I believe that uh, what Paul is saying is referring to an inheritance that we receive from God. Um, and, and mainly it's this. The reason is this because um, it's really just consistent with what he's already been talking about in the whole chapter. He's already talked about inheritance twice in the chapter. In verse 11 he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 14, uh, starting in 13, In him... Also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So I believe it's consistent with what Paul's already unpacking, that he's referring to an inheritance that we receive. Uh, this is the same inheritance referred to, and there's so many verses, I'll just read a couple. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Hebrews 9.15, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 1 Peter 1.4, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. What Paul wants the church to understand is the riches of this inheritance. Or as the Christian Standard Bible says, it says the, the wealth of this inheritance. So, and we must ask, what, what is the inheritance? What is the inheritance that we are to receive? Well, I believe amongst all of the benefits that we have in Christ, it all be, can be boiled down to this. The inheritance is God. The inheritance is God. And, and I ask you, what's your, what's your heart's first response on that? Is it, is it met with joy? Or is it met with disappointment? What is your heart's first response to what you get is God? I'll tell you, church, that there is nothing more to be gained. There is nothing greater to ascertain, to be acquired. As the book I wish was more famous than actually is by John Piper, the title of it says, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. What you get from God is only second at very best to God himself. We must understand that. The very best thing God could ever give us is himself. There are many people who want what God can offer them, but that they reject God completely. But it is only those who find all of the securement and all of their satisfaction and all of their delight in God here now, who enjoy God here and now, who will enjoy him for eternity. 
Jonathan Edwards um, has written some of the most beautiful language that we have on heaven. In his very first sermon, um, he wrote this, this lengthy um, description of heaven and God. And I'm just going to read, I don't have time to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Maybe I have, do have time. I'd like to read it, but I'm not going to. Um, go, go look it up. Um, the very end of it says this, the glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels and each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. Heaven will be heaven because God is there. Heaven is not heaven if God is not there. God, being with God, is the joy of heaven. And Paul prays for this understanding to sink in, the wealth of this knowledge to be understood, to realize, to be illuminated in the hearts of the Ephesians. Because he knows that from it, from this point of understanding, that our relationship with God will deepen. You know, take a second to analyze the whole context of what Paul is saying again here with me. Paul works from a conviction of God's sovereignty and salvation, that there's nothing that you or I could have ever done to win God's favor. We were lost, yes, even dead in our sin, but God loved us, he chose us, he called us, redeemed us, and guaranteed us an inheritance, the greatest inheritance we could ever receive one that we could not deserve, would never deserve. And it's this scandalous grace, the scandalous grace that has positioned us as sons and daughters of God. Pastor Ryan said last week, the more that we get to know and understand the holiness of God, the more we will understand what he has saved us from. We understand our sin, and the more we grasp our place then in Christ as the children of God. And how much we have been given by God in Christ. We've been given all of God himself. He gave all of himself to us. And the more we understand this, the more we ask, how can it be? How can it be, God, that you would give everything to me? Not just what you have, but who you are. This is what God has done for you. The deeper we understand this, the deeper we trust him. And the deeper we trust him, the deeper our communion with him will be. But how can we understand this if we do not pray? I am convinced that communion with God will be primarily exemplified in how we pray to God. Our relationship with God will be shown in what we pray and how we pray, how often we pray. It is the continual unceasing prayers, the earnest prayer that says that you want more than just something from whom you pray to. You want who you are praying to. I want you, God. On Friday, uh, Friday night, I, me and my wife, we watched this movie. And um, it's, called, it's called Lady Bird. Um, 
if you've seen it, I'm not necessarily condoning the movie. At, um, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, but it's a beautiful story of this kind of coming of age of this girl. And there's this part in it um, where she's speaking with a nun named Sister Sarah. And uh, she's at this Catholic school. And Lady Bird is what she calls herself. She, uh, she really hates the town she lives in called Sacramento in California. You've probably heard of it. She just hates it. She despises it, right? Um, kind of like I remember actually the, the, the feeling like growing up in Fort Myers and just be like, when I got out of high school, like the only thing is I'm getting out of Fort Myers, right? Um, and I didn't care where I went. And actually, I went close to Sacramento. But, um, but there's this beautiful exchange that happens here in this movie. And Sister Sarah, she says, you clearly love Sacramento. And Lady Bird says, I do. And she says, you write about Sacramento so affectionately and with, with, with such care. And Lady Bird says, well, I was just describing it. And Sister Sarah says, well, it comes across as love. Lady Bird, sure, I, I guess I pay attention. Sister Sarah, don't you think maybe they are the same thing, love and attention? This is profound to me because I really believe that you can boil down all the acts of love that one displays to another and really in one thing, attentiveness. Attentiveness. You know, my wife only knows how much I love her, but what I know about her, you know, by my attention to her, what she likes, what she dislikes, what she dreams about, what she fears, etc. Like, what I know about my wife, how attentive I am to her needs. That's how she knows I love her more than anything else. And what you care to know about someone is probably the greatest act of love that you could show them. Do you know how much God cared for you? He cared to know you so much that he went to the greatest lengths that anyone could ever imagine. That's how much he cared to get to know you. To actually call you his own. He says, I'm going to call that man, that woman my own. And I'm going to give everything I am to go and get them. I will be attentive to them. Engaging in prayer with God says that you want to know him, as Paul says, to know We'd care to know the depths of this hope that he has called us to and the wealth of his inheritance in us. Yeah, we would explore it. Yeah, we would know it. We would believe it and we'd live it. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm no man as an exemplary model to be talking on prayer or even as a husband. Uh, But man, I strive to be. What I am here today to say is that there will be a day, the good news is this, that one, we have a love from God um, that is unmatched. And we love him because he first loved us, right? The good news is even when we can't show the affection that we desire to show God, um, we know that we can only love him because he first loved us. And then the, the completion of this good news is this, that there will be a day where that love will be perfected and it will be perfectly mutual, There will be a day when this love between us and God will be perfectly mutual. Again, Jonathan Edwards, throughout his writing, he states many times this, that the chief joy of heaven will be that we finally will be able to express our love to God. 
The chief joy of heaven will be that we will finally be able to express our love to God. As Dane Ortland calls it in his reflections on Ed- Edward's writing, he says, This love is always mutual. The saints expressing their love for Christ, their hearts content, and Christ himself opening up to them the great fountain of love in his heart far beyond what they ever saw before. What a day that will be when we will experience a perfect mutual love. And today we have an opportunity to engage in just a, the dress rehearsal for that day. We get to engage in a shadow of that pray. When we pray today, we get a little taste of what heaven will be like. Where there is this complete mutual fellowship, relationship, and love exchanged between one another. So I want to close today with um, an encouragement to you in all of this. I want to kind of bring it down more practical. And and speaking on prayer, and again, you may be here and be like, man, I don't have any prayer life. Or maybe um, you're here and and you just know um, that, man, my prayer life is not what it ought to be. Hopefully we can all say that, you know. You're in good company. We can all say my prayer life is not what it ought to be. But our hope and confidence is that there will be a day where it will be what it ought to be. And so today, though, um, there's two things I want to encourage you towards. One is this. Start somewhere. Pray with intentionality. Pray with intentionality. I don't believe that we uh, are busier today than we were in in past years in history. Um, But we do have more to keep us busy today than, than ever before. Uh, we know how to, we can keep ourselves busy with just the dumbest things, right? We have to be intentional. If we want to grow in our prayer life, we have to be intentional with our time. And so do this in three ways. Find a place, find a time, and stick to it. Find a time. When can you pray? And, you know, it may not be what exactly your ideal time would look like, but start somewhere. And, and I don't mean the, the type of prayer that, you know, well, yes, we're, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Yes, I understand that. But I mean getting away to a place where you're quiet before God and it's just you and him. Do you have that time? And do you have that space? Is there a place that you've set aside? If not, find it. Find it. Commune with God. Go to God because he is your first calling. Because loving him is your first calling. Because he is the greatest thing that you could seek after. Because you know that all the time and effort that you put towards that time is never going to fail you. It's never going to return void on you. You're going to only gain from that. But we don't do it for gain, right? We do it because God is good. So be intentional. Maybe you don't know how to pray. You say, how, how do I pray? Well, how do I even start? Well, there's, there's a really good model if you, if you want to start somewhere, and, and that's this. Um, begin with adoration. Let it lead to thanksgiving. 
let that lead you to your supplication. So adoration. Begin with just, just telling God that you love him for who he is. That you're not there just to, to get stuff from God, but God, I adore you for who you are. That you are the God of all time and space. That you are the God who is faithful to the end. That you are the God who will never leave me nor forsake me. That you are the God who is compassionate and merciful to me even though I don't deserve it. That you are the God that you say you are. That you're always truthful. That you're always honest. That you're always, when I can't even understand it, you're good to me. Adore him for who he is. And then let that lead you to thanksgiving. How are you thankful? What has God done for you? Are you thankful for those things? Are you thankful for the gospel? And then let it lead you to pray for the things that you need. Listen, God knows what you need. The Bible tells us he knows what you need before you even ask of him. He's not surprised by your needs, whether big or small, whether they seem foolish or not. God wants you to ask him. Because in asking him, you say, God, you're the one, you're the only one that can give me these things. The second thing, so pray intentionally, and the second thing is this, pray with others. Pray with others. As a church, we believe wholeheartedly that um, we must pray together. And so we've given opportunities for this to happen in, in, in really three main different areas. Um, one is with community groups. If you're part of, not part of a community group, I encourage you to get part of one. So you can pray with others, so other people can know you, and you can know other people, and you know how to pray for them. So other people can encourage you in their prayers for you. Another way is pre-service prayer. Every Sunday we have at 9.15, pre-service prayer happens right here in this room. And so whether you serve here or you don't serve here, it's open to everybody. Come at 9.15. There's a space provided for you. It's provided. It's here. We put some music on. It's nice and somber. Lights are low. And you can come and you can pray with others. Then we'll gather up and we'll voice our prayers together. And then a third area, and this is... um, We've had a communal prayer on a monthly basis, probably up until you know, the end of last year. And then we've taken a bit of a hiatus from it. But we're going to be relaunching a time at the uh, um, end of August where we're going to have a prayer gathering on a monthly basis. And, um, and we do this because we believe that we need, to, we need to hear each other pray. We need to pray together. We need to agree in prayer together. Um, we need to be informed, equipped on how to pray. And so as leaders, we want to do that. We want to equip you on how to pray. How do you pray for the needs of the church? What are the needs of the church? We'll come and we'll pray about those things. What are, what are the things that are happening across the world with missionaries that we support? We'll pray for them. We'll voice our prayers together um, in our nation, in our city. We'll come together. And this is going to be Sunday nights right here in this room. Uh, child care will be provided and, uh, and we're going to tell you guys more about this but here's saying I encourage you guys to be there for that be there show up to pray 
show up to pray. I'll tell you, like every time I get together and pray and I'm like, why are we, why are we getting together? Why can't I just pray by myself? Well, here's the deal. I get together with other people and people are voicing prayers that I would never even think to pray for. And I'm encouraged and I'm built up. And I'm learning like, oh yeah, yeah, I need to pray for that. I'm built up by this person's prayer. I'm encouraged to hear them voice the things that they're praying for. The deep sorrow that they're hearing, I'm saying, oh, I can agree and say, Lord, meet them in their sorrow. Lord, meet them. I can be right there and agree with them. That's what God has called us to do as a church, to bear with one another, to walk with each other. And part of that walk is that we pray together. So again, pray with intentionality. Find the ways you can be intentional in your prayer life and to pray with others. We've given you space to do it and we invite you into it. We're gonna, before we take communion today, we're going to, uh, we're gonna sing a song and, uh, and the band's just gonna lead us in this truth. I mean, hopefully you guys, you know, know the words of this song. I'm just encouraging you, man, let's sing it out. We wanna just uh, end the sermon with this song because first and foremost, we, uh, there's this realization that God loves us, right? God is not disappointed in you, church. He's not looking down and frowning on you if your prayer life is waning. No, his arms are open wide and his affection for you is so great. He's saying, come to me. Come to me, daughter, son. Come to me. I'll give you rest. So let's just first agree in that, understanding that truth that God loves us so much. Let's stand and let's sing together.